Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. This is a picture that my daughter, this hangs in my office. This, this is a picture that my daughter did when she was in the first grade. And I don't know whether she did this at, we sent our kids to Christian school. They went to community Christian school. It's not, it doesn't, it's not around anymore, but it was a great school. And I don't know if she did this at school or if she did this at home because our, we, our kids were constantly, probably like most kids in most homes, they're creating things. They're painting. They're constantly painting and Play-Doh and you know, clay and arts and crafts and constantly had their, their, their hands dirty with different things that they were trying to do. And, and so I don't know where she painted this, but she had her little paintbrush and her little watercolors and she went to town and she painted this painting and it's got her name written here, Delaney Wilson, and then out to the side, she's kind of replicated this heart with the rays coming off of it. And I wrote out to the side, first grade, 2003. So if you walk into my office, if, you, if you're just looking straight ahead, this would be one of the first things you see because it's on the opposite wall of the door when you walk into my office. And uh, so she made this, and she brings it to me and you know, in that sweet little voice that only little daughters have, Daddy, look what I made. And I, of course, knew enough to rave about my daughter's handiwork, and I just went on and on about how beautiful I thought it was. I said, what is it called? And she said, I call it a heart that praises Jesus. Clearly, she has a stud of a father who is so spiritual, (laughs) has raised her right. Clearly, I am joking, you know. Uh, no, Delaney is a. She was a delightful child, and she's a. She. I adore her as a as a, a young woman now, daughter. I'm so proud of her. But um, here's the the thing I want you to think about. This was done by a first grader with no help. Okay, that's kind of what you get from a first grader with no help. It's not perfect. It's, I mean, it's sweet. It's beautiful in its own way, but it's it's lacking. We can all agree. But I just wonder what would have happened had I taken Delaney's artistic ability and subjected it to a master artist, a teacher, someone who would come behind this and try to teach her how to make use of light and space and contrast, color, how to, how to refine edges, how to shape things better, how to smooth things out. And I have no doubt that at times, as the, as the art instructor was instructing he or she might put their hand on Delaney's little hand if he if she was trying to draw an eye I understand that the eyes are really difficult thing to draw for artists hands are difficult to draw and so maybe if she's trying to draw a hand or an eye the artist would maybe put their hand on her hand and guide it just a little just to show her how it feels what the motion is what does it feel like to make this this particular part of the body or this particular shape or whatever and, and you just wonder if Delaney had had any um, encouragement and instruction from an artist what she could have become as an artist. Um, there is a sense in which you and I are creating on a canvas, and it is going to be called Our Life. And it starts, I don't know when it really starts. I mean, some would argue it starts at birth. I'm not sure it starts that early, but... You know, 8, 9, 12, 13, definitely 15, 16, you are, you are putting some stuff on your canvas and, and you are creating this, this, 
thing that will be a, you hope, a work of art. And, and at the end of your life, what happens is they are going to pull this out. One day you're going to pass away. And they're going to pull out your canvas. And they're going to put it on display. And what happens is they will, there's parts of it that they won't want to talk about, right? We have those, there's all of us have decisions. We've got seasons. We've got something that we did, some mistake that we made. Sometimes they, it's, it's a little thing. Sometimes it's a big thing. And you look at it and you're like, oh. So for some, and what we do in a funeral is we drape those. We don't talk about those. We, we really only talk about the good things. We, we don't talk about the fact, you know, they made a horrible financial decision in 2015. They, they you know, they cheated on their spouse. They cheated on their tax. We don't talk about those things. We only talk about the good things. And, and so what happens is, you know, you, you, we shroud it. For some, we shroud 25%. For others, we might shroud 50 or 90. You know, maybe somebody, you know, all they got is, is 90% shrouded and they got 10% they can show the rest of the world. Hopefully that's not you. For, we would hope, you know, that you would have to shroud very little of our life, but it happens. I had a I had a lady walk up to me one day. I did not know this woman. I didn't recognize her. She walked up. She said, are you Brett Wilson? I said, yes. She said, did you do a funeral for so-and-so? And I, I, you know, I had to kind of do a lot of funerals. I had to go back, and I do funerals for people I don't know very well. And I said, yes, that name, I did do a funeral for that, that person. And you know, I'm thinking at this point, well, now she's going to compliment me. She's going to tell me how much I, it meant to her and how much... Uh, it, 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 I honored his life, and, and it just that my words consoled her and meant so much. And I'm expecting her to give me an attaboy, and you know that was a good job. No, no, that's that's not what she was interested in at all. She she looked at me and she said, "That man was my ex-husband, and he was the worst man who ever lived. I don't know how you did it." So, you know, for the most part, we only talk about the good stuff at a funeral. But your life will be on display. And they'll talk about, you know, my daddy or, or my sister or my mama or my grandmother or my uncle or whatever. And then a couple of generations will go by and they'll put your artwork into a corner. And it'll, for, for most of us, we won't be mentioned that much. We're probably going to be forgotten a couple of generations down the line. And, you know, pretty much we disappear out of existence. That's it. Thank you for coming this morning. I hope you have a great, wonderful <laughs> week. <laughs> That's just the way it works, isn't it? I mean, for some of us, maybe somebody does something really grand and we remember that a little longer. But for most of us, we're remembered for a couple of generations and then life keeps happening and more kids come along that grow into adults that they, they take over the world and it's, it's up to them. But right now, all of us are in the midst of creating a piece of art that we would call our life. And now here's the thing. You don't get a series of, canvas, of canvases to do your life on. Okay, It's not like you get one for your 20s and you, you, know, you make a mess of that one and then you go, woo, 20s were bad, I'm going to put that one down. Now we're going to put up one for the 30s and I'm going to have a fresh start. That's not how it works. One canvas, all you get. One canvas. So the mistakes, the, 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 the horrific things that maybe go into making the painting of your 20s, now you're going to add your 30s onto that. Then you're going to add your 40s. You get one canvas, 
That's it. So here's where we're going today. It's crazy for us to think that we could make a masterpiece out of our life without some expert, without some master painter, excuse me, coming alongside us to help us in the process to make the painting of our life better. The same way Delaney would have benefited from a master artist explaining to her how to do things and maybe make it better, we're crazy to think that if we didn't get some outside help, that we would create a masterpiece on our own. And so we need guidance, specifically of our Heavenly Father. Now, we've talked about wise decisions, you know, in light of my past experience, my current circumstances, my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing to do? I've encouraged you that in every opportunity, every situation, every decision that you make, ask the question, what is the wise thing to do? That you're asking the question, not just is it good or bad, is it right or wrong? You know, that, those are easy. Is it, is it legal? I mean, we're all accountable to what's legal. You know, what's the least that I can do? That is the, that's like the least common denominator. That's total laziness, and hopefully we left that at adolescence, right? But in order to make wise decisions, there's one more component we have to talk about, and it is a thinking thing, and it is a creative thing. And it is this, to make wise decisions in any arena requires an understanding of and a submission to the principles and rules that govern that arena. Now, this, I'm going to explain this. This is really important. To make wise decisions in any arena requires an understanding of and submission to the principles and rules that govern that arena. If you are a baseball or a football coach, you are going to make certain decisions in that game relative to your team. You get to make some decisions. You get to strategize. You get to do some things. But everything you do is subject to the rules and principles of the game. And you cannot step outside the confines of those rules, otherwise you will get penalized. If you don't understand and submit to the principles and rules and laws of the sport, you will not make wise decisions as a coach. Coaching requires decisions, both, but those decisions are made within the context of the rules and principles of the game. If you're an architect, the same thing applies. right? There are, there are rules and principles of architecture that you have to consider when you're, when you're designing a building, you have to consider uh, gravity and, and loads, and, and you have to consider weather, you have to consider wind. Um, you know, skyscrapers, they build skyscrapers so that they sway. There, all that stuff has to be considered. There are rules and principles within architecture, and if you, if you, you can be creative, you can put a, ch a, a staircase here, you can put an elevator there, you can put a you know, a light piece here or something. You can make a statement with the lobby or whatever. But whatever you do has to be done within the confines of these are the rules and the principles that govern architecture, and I have to stay within these because if I don't, it's going to be unsafe. Same thing if you fly an airplane. Pilots get the opportunity all the time. I'm going to fly at a higher altitude, lower altitude. I'm going to bank the plane this way or that. I'm going to take this heading as I go into the airport. There's, I don't, you know, I don't know how much they're allowed. I know that there's some decision making that they probably get to decide themselves, but there's a lot that they have to consider in terms of what are the laws and principles that govern flight, and I have to obey those laws and principles, otherwise this plane will not stay in the sky and I'm going to hurt a lot of people. This is true for decorators, this is true for teachers, this is true for investment planners and investment advisors. 
They make decisions within the context and understanding and submitting to the principles, rules, and laws of their particular discipline or their particular arena. Now, you do this all the time. This is not something that's new for you. As soon as you leave this room this morning, you're going to go out, you're going to get in your car, and some of you are going to drive. And what you're going to do is you're going to, in order for you to be a good driver, you are going to have to obey the principles, laws, and rules of the road. And if you don't, you're going to put the people in your car in peril. There's a risk that someone could get hurt. Because as you brake, as you speed up, you, you have to submit to the rules. You have to know when it's, when, when, you have to know things about right of way, right? You have to know about yielding. You have to know about stop signs. You can't just ignore those things. If you ignore those things, people get hurt. If you speed in a residential area, you could run over a child. There's all kinds of bad things that can happen if you don't observe the rules of the, of the road, so to speak, the principles. And so as you break, as you speed up, as you throw your turn signal, you're working within the context of the principles and the rules of driving. We do this all the time at work, at our jobs, with our kids. We do it all the time. The principles and rules inform the decision-making process. We still have decisions to make. We still have a, the possibility that we can make profitable decisions, but the decisions are informed by principles, rules, and apply to specific arenas of life. To create the con they create the context for judgment. Okay, good judgment. They create the context for good judgment. When you go to the doctor, and the doctor exercises good judgment, what he does or she does, uh, they, they, they listen to you, you tell them what's going on with your body, you tell them where it hurts, you tell them what your problem is, you kind of lay it out for them, and, and within the confines of their discipline, they kind of listen, and, and within the rules and what they understand about how the body works and, and pain and things like that, they make a decision about what to do about your body. See, we, we do this all the time in many areas of life. In order to make a wise decision at home, at work, in any area of your life, you are in the process of doing this all the time. You are drawing on the principles and the rules. You are both understanding what they are and you are submitting yourself to them in order to be successful. An architect who does not, who knows what the laws and principles are of architecture but does not adhere to those, if I told you that there was a building and the architect doesn't really pay attention to load-bearing walls. He doesn't really consider wind. He doesn't consider weather. He doesn't really believe in gravity. Would you want to walk into that building? Probably not, right? You'd say, no, thank you. If you're an athlete and you try to function within the, the confines of the game, but you don't recognize the rules and the principles of the game, eventually what happens is somebody comes along and you either get a flag or a penalty or whistle blows, a card comes up, and at some point, if it's egregious enough, they say, you can't play anymore. You're done. You got to stop. So we, we get this. We do this all the time. Here's why this is important for church people and Christians and people trying to follow Jesus. We want to make wise decisions. We want to make wise health decisions. We want to make wise business decisions, you know, family decisions. We, we, we want to make wise life decisions decisions. We want to know what is the wise thing to do, and we want to do the wise thing, especially if you're a Christian, because you have been called to live at a level of wisdom, not simply right and wrong, not simply 
what's the most I, least I can get away with, not is it legal. Even if you're not a Christian, even if you're here, you might be here this morning and you're like, Brett, I'm not into the Jesus thing, I'm, I'm just here today. Listen, you may want to aspire to a, a higher level of existence and living and, and more successful. What I'm here to tell you is this, Jesus loves you enough to call you to something higher. And so what, what I would hope that you would recognize is, you know what, I hadn't really considered much about Jesus, but, but Jesus wants me to be better, and I don't even follow him. That might be enough for you to consider him. So here's how the principle applies to all of us. Wise life decisions require an understanding of and a submission to the principles and rules that govern life. Wise, wise life decisions. In other words, I know the what. Okay, I know the what. And submission to. I'm going to follow through with, with what I understand now, the principles that govern life. So as we ask the question, what is the wise thing to do? It's not simply enough to ask the question. There's this last and final component that we have to talk about. Otherwise, the question, in light of my, you know, future, my past experience, my current circumstances, my future hopes and dreams, what's the wise thing to do? It will lead you to the precipice of wisdom, but it will leave you there. The goal isn't simply to know what is the wise thing to do, to do the goal is to actually do it. So the goal isn't simply to understand what are the rules and the principles as, you know, as I'm a driver or a contractor or a doctor or dentist or teacher. The goal is that as I use good judgment, I make my decisions within the confines of those principles and rules and I have a better life. So I sh it shouldn't come as a surprise that the wisest man who ever lived outside of Jesus, Solomon gave us Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, and the book of Proverbs. And we talked about him last week. He was the wisest man in the world. He was a king. He was an architect. He was a designer. He was a musician. He was a writer. Highly, highly skilled man. This guy was really skilled. The wisest man who ever lived says to us, in order to make wise decisions, there is a component that goes beyond simply knowing the right thing or the wise thing to do, and that is to submit to the one that established the laws and principles of life. Here's how he says it in Proverbs 9. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You've probably heard that before. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you're at a place where you're thinking, Brett, I love this question. Uh, you know, I, I, I can see the benefit of it. I've been I wish I'd been asking this in my 20s. My life would look different if I'd been asking this question in my 20s. I just wish I'd known this then. I wish I'd known this before I got married. I wish I'd asked this before I asked her out. I wish I'd asked this before I took that job. I wish I had asked this before I did that thing that has now become an addiction for me. I really do want to make wise decisions. Solomon says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And I think this verse has been misused and misunderstood for a long, long time by a lot of people. The fear of the Lord in this context is the recognition and reverence that leads to submission. The recognition and reverence that leads to submission. That's what we're talking about when we talk about fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is when you wake up in the morning and you say, God, I'm God and you're not. <laughs> or you're, you're God and I'm not. Did I say that backwards? <clears throat> I'm sorry, God. <clears throat> 
you are God, and I am not. God, you know more about relationships than I do. You know more about finance. You know more about marriage and husbands and wives and friendship and children. And God, I believe that you know more about life than I do. And I believe that the best thing I can do is submit myself to you. So here's my life. And there are going to be some things that you're going to require of me. And I'm not necessarily going to understand. And you're going to say, let's do this. And I'm going to go, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't get that. I don't understand. Why are we doing it this way? Excuse me, I'm really struggling right now. And God, there will be other times that you're going to call me to do something and I'm going to fully understand what it means and I'm going to get it and I'm going to do it. But God, either way, I'm submitting my entire life to you because you created me and you know me from the inside out. And it just makes more sense to me that I would listen to you. Because the only way for me to make wise decisions is to understand the rules and the principles and then to submit myself to those rules and principles of life. So Solomon says in the, that the beginning of wisdom is not a question. The beginning of wisdom is a decision to submit yourself to the authority of your heavenly father. <clears throat> Here's what he says <coughs> in the second part of the verse. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For those of us who believe that God created the earth and everything in it, isn't it interesting that every single day we engage with earth, we, we live and breathe and we move in the earth. Our lungs interact with oxygen. We understand what gravity, we may not, we may not be able to define gravity, but we know that it exists and we operate knowing that gravity is there. We know we can't just jump out of an eight-story building, right? We know that. We operate in the world that God created all the time. Every single day, we interface with the laws and principles of physics, gravity. If you've ever flown on a plane, you're operating within the laws and understanding that we understand what those are, and we're operating within the, the rules and the principles of aerodynamics, right? We do that every day. These are all creations. These are all things that God has set into motion that he's made a certain way. We trust in those things all the time. We have figured out so much about the way the world works and how God created the earth. In fact, let me just say this. There's this thing that goes on between science and faith, and it needs to stop. There's this sense in which you're either on one side or the other. You're either a science person or you're a faith person. And if you're looking at life from either of those perspectives and leaving the other one out, you're doing it wrong. They are not mutually exclusive. Okay, You don't have to check your brain at the door to believe in Jesus, and you don't have to deny Jesus to listen to what science says. Science basically tells us that's how God did it. That's what Christians believe. I think some Christians are scared to death that science is finally going to figure out a way to argue against God, and they're going to have to say, well, I can't believe in God anymore because science finally did a number on my faith. No, that's not, that's not necessary. Here's what I think. 
I don't, I can't talk about this very, and this is not in my notes, so give me umbrella of grace is what we say at Cross Lane. Umbrella of grace, okay? I'm standing under the umbrella of grace. This is not in my notes. But there's a thing called CERN. <clears throat> Am I right about that? It's a particle collider or something like that. And they're, they're tr- what they're trying to do is they're trying to, scientists are trying to find something that they call the God particle. And if they can find they think if they find the God particle that it means that God doesn't exist. exist. <laughs> no. No. If they, what, what happens is as science discovers things, my response is, oh, that's how God did it. Right? God made science. God is not afraid of science. God is perfectly okay with you discovering something scientifically. I think God sits back and smiles and he's like, oh, they're getting smart. You know, they're getting smart. They figured that out. The same way when your kids were little and they're two years old and they're learning something new every day, right? And they finally figure out how to do something with a toy. You know that, that thing, that octagon thing with all the shapes, and they finally figure out how to get the plus sign in there? And you're like, yes, my son's a genius. I think that's how God looks at scientists. I think when they find something new, he goes, oh, I'm so proud of him. God made it. God knows how it works. It's not new to him. You don't have to be afraid of it. And they're not the boss. They're not the king. Neither is faith the king. They they hold hands. They work together, okay? Okay, I'm I'm outside. I've stepped out from underneath the umbrella of grace. Maybe that's not a good idea. Maybe I should just stay under the umbrella of grace. Let's do that. Why don't we do that? Basically, science and scientists, are they're constantly looking at natural causes, and they're discovering, we believe, that they're discovering how God made it to work. If I, were able, if I were able to explain this keyboard to you, how, you know, how it works, and, and when you touch this key, it does this, and, and it's, this thing's got all kinds of buttons. If I could explain all that to you, you would not look back at me and say that because I can explain it to you that it doesn't have a creator. You wouldn't say that. See, the, the, the fact that we can explain certain things doesn't mean that there isn't a creator. No one would ever draw that conclusion. Science is simply different people in the, in the different disciplines who are discovering over time how God created things to work. Every time there is some new discovery, Christians should say, oh, that's how he did that. That's amazing. Science is not in conflict with faith. So here's my point. Every single day, You leverage for your benefit the laws and principles and rules of how life is set up, how God has made it to work. So why wouldn't you submit your entire life to the one who created you and knows what's best for you? Why wouldn't you do that? You know, when you go to the doctor, one of the first things they do is they, they check for your pulse. Have you ever noticed that they don't, when you walk in, they don't say, well, we're going to check for a pulse, but first we got to find it, right? Would it make you nervous if you walked in and, and the doctor said, well, sit up here on this table. We're going to start at your ankle, and i got to find your pulse. And he starts making his way up your leg. At some point, you're going to say, uh, Doc, you know, I don't like this game very much, right? Like, like if, if he said to you, yeah, we found a pulse on the last guy's buttocks, And the guy before him, we found it, you know, uh, in the back of his head. No. You know when you go to the doctor, every time you go to the doctor and he checks, he checks for your pulse right here or right up here, right? 
there are a couple of places that God has said, this is the best place for you to find a pulse. So when you want, and, and so doctors know everybody's, you know, God has created them the same. I can look for a pulse in the same place on every person. We're able to fly airplanes because we figured enough about, figured out enough about atmospheric pressures and the way things work in the skies, and they're consistent enough that we can consistently send airplanes up and land them very safely, right? Because there's consistency there. The same way that, that um, a punter or a, a, a quarterback or a, a, a basketball player, can you imagine if gravity was different today than it's going to be tomorrow or the, or the day after that? And a basketball player's, you know, shooting, he's practicing his free throws, and one day it takes this, it takes this much pressure to shoot the ball, and the next day he's got to work even harder because the gravity is different? No, gravity is the same all the time. That's the way God made it. And so we interact with gravity that way, and we go, okay, this is the, this is the pressure it takes to consistently make a free throw. That, that's the principle at work here. Here's what Solomon may have had in mind in this verse. Why would you not consider surrendering your life to the God who created all things that you leverage every single day for your benefit. I think that's what he means when he talks about fear of the Lord. In other words, knowledge of the Holy One is what brings understanding. Bottom line, to make wise decisions in life requires submission to the author of life. Just like you have to understand and submit to the principles of a particular environment to make a wise decision. In life in general, in order to make wise decisions, we have to submit ourselves to the author of life. And this isn't such a strange idea because to some degree, you do this in every arena of life every single day. Now Solomon's father, do you know who Solomon's father was? King David, exactly. Solomon's father said the very same thing that Solomon said. Here's how King David said it in Psalm 111. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So wisdom begins with fear and reverence and awe of God. And then listen to his twist on this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. All who follow, all who say yes to the precepts of God, a precept is a teaching, it's a, a principle, it's a law, it's a rule. All who follow or acknowledge or obey or say yes to the precepts have good understanding. That's David's way of saying sometimes you have to say yes to God before you even know how it's going to turn out. Sometimes you have to say yes to the master artist, to their instruction, in order to understand what they're asking you to do in a certain area. Like you, you've got to just say yes before it's going to make any sense to you. Sometimes to understand why, you have to submit and apply. That's why Solomon and David and many of us have discovered through our own experience that the beginning of wisdom, that the, the, the launching place for wisdom is a big unreserved Y-E-S when it comes to God. That God, I'll do it, whatever you ask me to do, I'll do it. Solomon and David say this is the beginning of wisdom because what you're saying is you're saying yes to the one who created you and knows all about you and knows what you need more than anybody else. He's the one that governs the universe. He's the one that put all these principles in place. He's the governor of life. And now here's where you've got to make a decision. Because hopefully, as we have made our way through this series, there is now a hunger and a thirst within you for wisdom, 
right? Like, I want to be one of these people who just makes good decisions. I want to be somebody who, who makes wise decisions. We all have enough stuff on our canvas where it didn't go great. We didn't ask for wisdom. We weren't thinking about God. We've got seasons, we've got places where we look at that picture and we go, whoo, that part would look so different if I just asked the question, what is the wise thing to do? I so wish in this particular season of my life I had asked, what is the wise thing to do? But I didn't. This wouldn't have happened if I'd asked what was the wise thing to do. If you're a parent, you want your kids to ask this question because you know this is going to lead them to a place of greater security in their life. So here's the question for the last time. Say this with me. In light of my past experience, my current circumstances, and my future hopes and dreams, what's the wise thing for me to do? Okay, here's the thing. Asking that question will clarify for you a lot of things in your life. It does not actually guarantee that you will do anything, right? There's no, there's no, I'm gonna do it in there. That's just asking the question, true? It's very clarifying, it's very clear. In fact, it's so clarifying that at times you may not wanna ask the question. Asking this question will clarify what you should do. It will not, it does not guarantee that you will actually do anything. And doing is what makes all the difference. So to come to the end of our series, I say this. You know, you come to the end and you go, oh, I love this question, I'm gonna ask this question, I'm gonna teach my kids to ask the question. That's just part of the equation. At the end of the day, it's not simply knowing what is the wise thing to do, it's actually doing it. And Solomon and David and all of us that have had just any life experience whatsoever, we all know this to be the case. The question leads me right up to the precipice of wisdom, right up to the precipice of a better and brighter future, but it does not deliver me until I actually do something. Better relationships, better financial situation, better interior life. The ultimate issue is, am I going to do the wise thing? Let me make sure I don't get out of balance here. Am I going to do the wise thing? And the, the, the thing that determines whether or not you do the wise thing is not knowing the question, it's whether or not you have surrendered your will to a heavenly father who has put all of this in motion and knows how it all works. That's really the difference. The beginning of wisdom isn't a question. The beginning of wisdom is a decision to say yes to your heavenly father. Look back at your canvas. When you think about your life, the canvas of your life, your canvas in some way is going to reflect areas where you allowed God to have some influence on what was going on in your world. But there's going to be other places that you're going to look at and go, man, that picture could be so much better if I just submitted that picture would be so much better if I'd just done what God wanted me to do. It, was, it would have been the wise thing. The only way for your picture going forward, see, here's the thing. If in your 20s and 30s, you, you, you put just trash on your canvas, you look at that and go, man, I mean, I've ruined my life. No, if you start to bring God in and say, God, guide my hand, really do something wonderful with what is left of my life, he can make that, a beautiful picture, but you have to say yes to your heavenly father. 
The beginning of wisdom isn't a question. The beginning of wisdom is a decision. A decision to say yes to God. A decision to do something that is very difficult, and this is what it is. God, blank check with my life. Blank check. The answer is yes before you even ask me the question. Whatever you want me to do, I'm going to do it. Now listen, that's hard. That's really hard. Just as we have, an have to understand and submit to the laws and principles that govern what we do and work with our hobbies as we drive, in the same way, we have to be willing to understand and submit to the laws and principles of life and submit ourselves to the author of that life. He's the one that made it. He knows the best way to navigate it. So as we close, I want you to take your hand and make a fist. Okay, Show me your fist like you're going to punch me. I want you to pretend that you have in your hand a paintbrush, the kind that Delaney would have had to make this painting, okay? You've got a paintbrush like that in your hand. And, and there's a sense in which we, at about 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, there's a sense, this, this grip that we've got, squeeze it tight, okay? Squeeze it really tight. There's a sense that at 16, 17, 18, what we're saying to our parents is, I can't wait for the time that I'm allowed to get out and I can paint any way I want to and your hand won't be on my painting, right? That's just natural. That is a natural thing for every kid to go through to yearn for their, their independence. I tell parents all the time, uh, your job is to set the boundary, their job is to test the boundary, right? And, and they, boy, do they do that at about 16, 17. And they can't wait to get their own independence. The problem is, as we move into adulthood, we never relax our hand. Our hand stays every bit as tightly wrapped around the paintbrush as it was when we were 16, 17, and 18 years old. When Solomon said to us, when David says to us, and many of you know this from your own heart, you know, the only way for our canvas to look the way we want it to look, the only way for it to look like there's wisdom and there's selflessness and and, you know, instead of all the selfishness and pride and everything else that our life can just make a mess of our canvas, the wisdom of God instead of just letting go, right? If I would just let go and let God take care of, of my picture and just do what he says, the only way to get there is to open your hand to your heavenly Father and say, not my way, but your way. Father, not my way. I've, I've held on to this paintbrush long enough and I've made a mess of it. Here, you take the paintbrush. You help me to make this better. I want your way, not my way. You see, here's the thing. This is creative, but you don't want your, your life to look like this. This is creative. You look at that and you say, oh, that's, you know, that's sweet. A little first grade girl, little six-year-old girl, she made that. And isn't that creative, and isn't that a creative, interesting painting? It's one thing to have a creative and interesting painting. It's another thing to have a creative and interesting marriage. It's another thing to have a creative and interesting morality. It's another thing to have a creative and interesting set of ethics. Abstract art is wonderful. Abstract life is not. Abstract art is wonderful. Abstract marriage is not, right? And God, the master artist, wants to guide your life. He wants to be the master. He wants to help you create a masterpiece 
with your life, something that when you look back, you can, you can smile and you can say, that's where he helped me. That's so beautiful because he had his hand on my painting. He had his hand on my, my, my brush as I was painting those strokes. A masterpiece that reflects his intervention and your uniqueness. The only way for that to happen is for you to open your hand and give him control. But here's what we do. We say, God, I'll give you my kids. God, I'll give you my husband. I don't know what to do with him anyway, right? He needs all the help he can get. I'll give him to you. God, I'll give you my health. I'll give you that area of my life. But God, I will not give you my money. I will not give you my health. I will not give you my career. There's something. I will not give you this addiction. There's something that I'm not going to give you. And boy, we may not have much to hold on to it with, but we hang on for all we're worth, and we just simply will not let it go. You can have all of these, but you cannot have all of my life. And a God who loves you, a God who created this planet, a God who made life and put you in this world, a world that he designed for you says, come on, you leverage your life every day. You interact, your lungs, your body moves and works with gravity and all these different principles and rules that I've set into effect. Come on, you do that every single day. Now trust me. Trust me. And say yes to me. And allow me to put my hand on your hand and finish this masterpiece that we call your life. It's not just asking the question. You got to do it. What is the wise thing for me to do? Here's the wise thing. See, too often we go, but I don't want to do that. What's the wise thing for you to do? The wise thing for you to do is not buy that and save the money. Well, I don't want to do that. The wise thing for you to do is to shut your mouth and not say anything back to that hateful comment. Well, I don't want to do that. Think about how many times you've known what was the wise thing to do and you didn't do it. Let's pray. Father, Nike was right. Just do it. Just do it. We know oftentimes we ask the question, but it's more than that. We cannot just be led up to the precipice to know what is the wise thing and stop there. Nothing gets better. It doesn't get better until we take action and we make the decision to do what is wise. And Father, that oftentimes requires us to lay our pride down. It requires us to to, to turn over control to you, the areas of, of our life. And, and Lord, it's just hard for us to do that. I pray that after this series, we are making better decisions, not because we're just asking a question, what is the wise thing to do, but because we're actually doing it. Help us in that regard. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.